What is faith? Faith is a word that gets thrown around a lot today. People say, my faith is important to me. They might also say, my faith is very personal. I don't like to talk about it. They might even say, I do have faith, but I don't stop to think about it that much. A while ago, someone said to me, I have faith, but I've never really looked into it. On surveys, we're asked to tick boxes that say what faith we belong to. Or we can tick a box to say that we belong to no faith. We use the word faith, but its meaning can be a bit vague, a bit cloudy. But when we turn to the Bible, we find the Bible is not vague or cloudy about faith. And this morning we come to one of the key Bible passages on faith. We are in a section of Romans where Paul is answering the question, what is the gospel? And Paul knows that you and I cannot understand the gospel without understanding faith. And so he spends a whole chapter helping us understand what biblical faith is. And to do that, Paul goes all the way back to Abraham. Paul says true faith is faith like Abraham's. If you haven't already turned to the book of Romans, turn to Romans chapter 4. In the church Bible, it's page 1131, or in the large print, 1749. And in a moment, I'm going to read the whole of Romans chapter 4. But before I read this, remember what we saw last time. And if you weren't here last time, let me tell you. At the end of chapter 3, Paul's been talking about the work God did so we can be counted righteous. God poured out his wrath on his own son so we could escape his wrath. We can be declared not guilty because Jesus paid for our guilt on the cross. And Paul ended chapter 3 by saying that our own effort and our own good deeds play no part at all in this. We have nothing to boast about. When God declares us in the right or righteous, it's all because of what Jesus has done. But having finished chapter 3, Paul knows that what he has just said is not going to sit very well with many of his own people, the Jews. They are going to object to what they've just heard. And the reason they're going to object is because they think Abraham disproves what Paul has just said. The Jews of Paul's day believed Abraham was declared in the right with God because of his obedience to God, particularly his willingness to obey God's command to sacrifice his son Isaac. So here in chapter 4, Paul says, let's take a look at Abraham. Let's listen to what the Bible tells us about him. We all look to him as our forefather, 
So let's allow his experience with God to set the pattern for our experience with God. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, 
to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is God's word. In the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul says, there's no doubt there were good things in Abraham's life, good works. But the question is, as far as God's concerned, did those works earn him a not guilty verdict from God? Then Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 15 in verse 3, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The background to that passage is that back in Genesis 12, God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Then sometime later, at the beginning of chapter 15, Abraham said to God, I'm sorry to be bringing up awkward details here, God, but I don't have any children, not even one. I can't become a great nation without children. So I assume, Abraham said, you're going to fulfill this promise through one of my relatives or one of my servants. But God said, no, Abraham, a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God said, look up, Abraham. Try and count the stars in the night sky. Can't manage it? Well, you won't be able to count your descendants either, Abraham. And then comes the statement that Paul quotes in verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's point is, Abraham was counted in the right with God before his obedience with Isaac. This conversation with God happened before Isaac was even conceived, and before the command came to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham was counted righteous by believing what God promised him. Now, at this point, we might think that we've got it. We might say, okay, so believing God or having faith in God, that must be the work that earns me righteousness. When I put my trust in God, the reward he gives me is to pardon my sin. Is that what you mean, Paul? Paul immediately says no. Don't think of faith as a type of work you have to do. Faith does not achieve your salvation. It's simply the way you receive your salvation. When I turned 17, I did not deserve to be given the keys to my parents' car. I did not deserve to have one of them sit in the passenger seat while I learned to drive. And I didn't earn the right to those things simply by believing my parents would be willing to give them to me. No, what happened was they told me they were willing to lend me the car and teach me to drive. 
Believing what they said did not earn me anything. It was simply the way I received their generosity. And boy, did they come to regret it. Really. My dad was with me once when I started rolling backwards down a hill towards a parked car. My dad pulled the handbrake. The handbrake came off in his hand. And then he tried to get out of the car while it was still moving. At that point, I took my foot off the clutch and we took off up the hill with my dad half in and half out of the car. (laughs) If you ever see my dad and notice him twitching, you'll know he's still thinking about that. (laughs) The point is, giving me the keys and sitting in the car with me, that was not my reward for having faith in their promise. It was pure grace on my parents' part. 100% unmerited favor. Holding out my hand for the keys was simply the way I received their grace. And here Paul wants us to see it's the same with faith in God. Biblical faith, faith like Abraham's, relies on grace, not reward. Look how Paul puts it in verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. If I've worked hard for my employer all month, I don't sit around hoping he'll be nice and give me some money at the end of the month. No, I've done the work, so he owes me the wages. In that situation, I am not relying on my employer's grace. I'm relying on the reward that's due to me. He's obliged to pay me. But here Paul says, that is not the way it works with God. When it comes to being declared not guilty before God, he has no obligation to us. We cannot rely on that righteousness coming as a reward. It won't come that way. We have to rely on it coming by grace, simply because God has promised it to us. So when Paul speaks in verse 5 about the one who does not work, He's not calling us to be lazy. He's speaking very specifically about the way salvation comes to us. The person who will be saved from God's wrath is the person who stops trying to work for their salvation as a reward and instead receives it as a gracious, undeserved gift. The person who trusts God's grace instead of their own work will be justified. They will be declared not guilty before God. Paul explains it with the word credited. Our faith in God's grace will be credited or counted as righteousness. That's an accounting term. 
It means when we trust God, righteousness comes to us as if we had earned it. It's not a wage, but it goes into our account just like a wage, by grace. Paul is focusing on Abraham. In verse 6, he turns to another Old Testament hero to back up his point. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. David knew his blessedness didn't come from his own great performance. His blessedness came from the fact that God did not count David's naff performance against him. David managed to commit adultery and murder, and in the process, abuse his God-given political power. If God paid David what David was owed, then David was sunk. But when David came to God in repentance, asking for mercy, he received a forgiveness he was not owed. You and I all have faith in something. And if we believe in God, we either have faith that we can earn salvation as a reward from him, or we have faith that he gives salvation as a gracious gift to those who come to him. If we're relying on earning salvation, then we're either going to be puffed up with self-righteousness, if we think we're doing well, or we're going to be plagued by insecurity if we understand our weakness and our failure. But faith like Abraham's causes us to transfer our hope from our own effort to God's grace. How do you know if you're relying on reward instead of grace? Well, do you ever catch yourself thinking... I just can't see how God will accept me because I'm like this or I did this. Or do you ever think, you know, maybe God will accept me because I'm like this or I did this. When you and I think in either of those ways, we are still thinking of God's acceptance as a reward. Biblical faith relies on God's grace. It realizes God's acceptance is a gift. It comes when we hold out empty hands to receive it. Paul goes on to say that faith like Abraham's is the mark of God's people. In verses 9 to 12, Paul says, Let's think for a moment about religious ritual. Does that have any bearing on our acceptance with God? And of course, the Jews of his day said, yes. We've seen that before. They believed circumcision was like a membership badge. If you had the mark, you belonged to God's people. 
they thought of circumcision the way many people today think about baptism. Go through the ritual and you're in the club. But here Paul says, let's do a very simple test on that belief. We've read a clear statement from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the test is this, Paul says, did that happen before or after Abraham was circumcised? The answer is, God counted Abraham righteous before he was circumcised. He wasn't circumcised until chapter 17 in Genesis. And therefore, religious ritual, whether it's circumcision or baptism or whatever, religious ritual is no factor in whether or not God accepts you. Acceptance comes when we trust God. The mark of God's people is not a mark made by a knife. It's not a soaking made with water. The mark of God's people is trust in God. Faith that takes him at his word. So then what about the rituals? Do they have any purpose at all? Well, look what Paul says about circumcision in verse 11. He, that's Abraham, received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Abraham's circumcision was a sign of the acceptance he already had with God. If he hadn't been accepted by God before he went through the ritual, the ritual wouldn't have meant anything. It wouldn't have changed anything. So please don't think you have to jump through hoops or go through some initiation before God will accept you. If you take God at his word when you hear his word, if you come with empty hands to receive his grace, then you belong to his people. There's another truth that follows directly on from that. Faith like Abraham's inherits what God promised. In Genesis, God made some massive promises to Abraham. He promised blessing that would spread to the whole world. And having proved that circumcision didn't get Abraham into God's family, Paul now says... It wasn't Abraham's law-keeping that made him an heir to those great promises. In fact, the law was given long after Abraham was dead. God gave the promises before there was even a law for Abraham to keep. Verse 13, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Actually, let's go back to verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, 
Faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Why would Paul say the promise is worthless if those who depend on the law are heirs? Simply because sinners can't keep the law. If people had to keep the law to inherit the promises, no one would inherit the promises. The law only brings wrath on us. That helps us see what Paul means when he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says that in verse 15. He doesn't say, where there is no law, there is no sin. He uses the word for willfully crossing a boundary. All of us sin whether we have God's law or not. But we can only willfully cross the boundary of the law if we have the law. And so Paul's point is, far from being a path to inherit God's promises, the law just makes us doubly guilty. It warns us of the boundaries And then we keep crossing the boundaries. Verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, meaning Jews, who were born with the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Maybe you read the Old Testament and you find yourself thinking, does this have anything to do with me? Are the promises I find in the Old Testament for me? Well, here's your answer. God promises Abraham and his descendants... The promises that God gives to Abraham and his descendants are for those who have the faith of Abraham. Therefore, those who take God at his word and hold out empty hands to receive what God has promised. Maybe you're thinking, okay, but it is hard to trust God. In fact, the situation I'm in makes it too hard. I am surrounded by difficulties that just crush my faith. It's too hard. Well, think for a moment about Abraham's situation at the time he believed God. What situation was Abraham in? In Genesis 12, when God first promised to make Abraham into a great nation, Abraham was 75. And his wife Sarah was 65. And they had never been able to conceive children. Then in Genesis 17, 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah still had no children. But God repeated the promise. And Isaac wasn't born until Genesis 21. So how easy do you think it was for Abraham to trust God during all those years? 
Do you think Abraham's circumstances tended to buoy up his faith or challenge his faith? You and I are unlikely to face the same difficulty as Abraham. But over the course of our lives, we will not often find ourselves in circumstances that make faith easy for us. Real life does not make faith easy. But biblical faith is built for real life. Biblical faith can survive the most difficult circumstances. Why? Because it looks beyond our circumstances. It does not deny our circumstances. Biblical faith is not air-headed optimism. It doesn't pretend the difficulties aren't there. But it looks beyond them. Faith like Abraham's looks at God, not circumstances. Remember Abraham's circumstances and then hear what Paul says in the middle of verse 17. He, that's Abraham, is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Paul describes here the God Abraham was trusting. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Before Abraham tried to make sense of his circumstances, he looked up above his circumstances. He remembered the credentials of his God. And that's what we all have to do. None of us can escape real life. We don't have the luxury of moving to Hawaii and playing a ukulele all day. And even if we did do that, reality would catch up with us there too. People who live on paradise islands get cancer too. They have family problems too. We all have to deal with real life. But we cannot deal with it unless we first look up from real life and remember the God who is with us. John Calvin said, all things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. If we don't look up from those things around us to the God of the promises, then our faith will not survive. Biblical faith is not like Maria von Trapp's faith in the sound of music. You know that song, I have confidence in confidence alone. Biblical faith does not have confidence in confidence alone. Biblical faith has confidence in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. We have to learn to say that what matters in every situation is not what is true of us, but what is true of him. Then we are ready to face our circumstances. That's what Abraham did. 
Verse 17 told us he looked up and he remembered what was true of God. Then, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. It was a fact that Abraham's body was as good as dead. And Sarah's womb was the same. That was reality for Abraham. But there was a greater reality. Abraham's God was the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so Abraham had faith in God despite his circumstances. Calvin was right. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. And so our only hope is to do what Abraham did, to look at God, not our circumstances. Remember God's character. Remember his power. Remember what he has done in the past. Remember that bigger reality. Remember that the God who is with you is greater than your circumstances. And then you're ready to go on in your circumstances. That's biblical faith. Now there is a little detail in these verses that should give all of us hope and encouragement. Notice how Paul describes Abraham's faith. In verse 19, he says, Abraham and, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah's as good as dead bodies did not cause Abraham to weaken in his faith. And in verse 20, Paul says Abraham did not waver through unbelief. How does that give us hope and encouragement? Well, as I just read those statements you should have been thinking, really? Because those statements make us wonder if Paul has read the Bible's account of Abraham's life. We might think Paul would put things a bit differently if he had read the biblical account. In Genesis, Abraham seems to do a fair bit of weakening and wavering in his faith. So did Paul not know about all that? Or was he hoping his readers wouldn't know about it? Of course Paul knew. And of course his readers knew. The Bible makes no effort at all to cover up Abraham's flawed faith. Yes, he questioned God. Yes, he made some decisions that seem lacking in faith. But through it all, he continued to look up 
And that's the point. Faith is not about how solid we are. It's about how solid God is. What matters in every situation is not what is true of us, but what is true of him. Faith like Abraham's lasts because whatever our failures, we persist in the habit of looking up from our circumstances to God. And when you and I look at God, we are not looking at some faceless being who's remote from us. In this, we are more blessed than Abraham. Because faith like Abraham's now focuses on Jesus. Look at verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Today, our faith relies on grace that comes to us through Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that's the mark of God's people today. It's faith in Jesus that will inherit what God promised. And when our circumstances cause us to begin questioning God's love, the God we look up to is the God who gave his one and only Son for our salvation. When our circumstances cause us to question God's power, the God we look up to is the God who raised Jesus to life. And when we sin, when we realize we've fallen in the muck again, we get up again because we know Jesus' death and resurrection were for us to pay for our sin, to make us acceptable to God. You and I are weak sinners. But biblical faith says what matters is not what is true of me, but what is true of him. We're going to have opportunity now together to look up to him. We're going to do that as we sing together, I will glory in my Redeemer. And then we're not alone.